name's Chris Glender, and you're listening to Through a Scientist's Eyes, a weekly exploration of how science gets done, and some interesting facts about how it impacts your life. Today I want to go back to a concept that I talked about in episode 2, and a little bit in episode 1 and episode 3, but really going back to that focus on some of the biochemistry and cell biology that makes us, that of how we know what we know really around this idea of the beads on a string, of, of how we pack DNA into a small area. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to take the, this more of an experimental approach, and I really want to go through some of the experiments and, and kind of explain the experimental biology behind the experiments, how we know what we know. Because I think I feel like that is one of the things that, that we just don't articulate enough. We don't explain well enough to people. Um, sometimes because we have high-minded scientists who don't think it's worth the effort to try and explain to people, uh, and I won't use the term dumb down because I don't believe it's dumbing down, but it's important to give people contextual information in a way that matches what they know, what they can visualize. Um, because as you're listening to me and I start bringing up some of these concepts, there will be a picture in your brain. It doesn't matter whether it's the right picture or not, but that'll be what solidifies it for you. The ability to make that image match what I, as a scientist, think is important for you to know and to grasp is really important. It's it's part of what we're failing at when we do education for college students, is we don't express these things in ways that match with what they can understand. And we try and use PowerPoint, or we do these things, and, and even myself with my the whiteboards that I do and that I post onto Instagram and, and onto my blog. Are they right? Mm, they're not quite there. I think they represent the visualizations that I use in my brain for how I animate these things. Are they are they going to work for everybody? No. I, I'm i stuck with the biases and the context that I have. What I try and do is, is take away, strip away as many of those and at least give you an image that I'm thinking of and give you the resources to look at other people and how they're imaging it. Because obviously there's a wide set of people imaging some of these things. There's some really cool things being done. I, I really think that that we are on the cusp of kind of figuring out how to communicate really technical science to people who probably don't care. Um, and, and that's all right, you don't have to care. What, what I do like and I do want people to be able have is a intellectual curiosity on on the surface level and that's why I try and keep these down to 15 20 minutes and and if you look at the run times on these I fail miserably and so um, I'll try better today with that let's go back let's go back and reintroduce the concept of chromatin um, if you haven't listened to episode one or two or even three, I'll give you the the cliff note version of my cliff notes. Um, and that is, what is chromatin? Chromatin is how we package DNA so that we can fit your whole genome into a small area. So we have a small sphere, which is the nucleus, and we have to fit six meters worth of DNA into that area. And we have a couple problems here. One of the problems is that DNA, much like a magnet, is polarized. So if you've ever tried to take two kitchen magnets and put them together and you watch what's happening, it's not that they just vertically go away from each other. You can't, 
but they will shear so that they are not directly in front of each other. So they not, their poles are not directly in contact. And it's not even that they're not directly in contact. You know, they have a physical distance between them, but if you try and push them, they'll shear off to the side. And all that to say is we have the exact same problem when we try and package DNA so that it'll go into a small area. So what the cell has done is it's taken proteins, which again are charged animal, charged, excuse me, not animal, but charged product. And we use that to swamp out the, the charge of the negative. So most proteins are positively charged. So for any of you that did uh, have ever worked with magnets, negative plus positive is a zero. Um, so we can now take these and the way that we we know that it looks because we can we've got microscopes that can take a picture of it is we call these the beads on the string so it's a protein core and then you wrap uh, DNA around it and then you and you have multiple protein beads on a string and then you can take these and you can weave them together into it into these tight architectures that allow you to put this whole thing into a nucleus and then string it across the nucleus from anchor to anchor and then you can make this three-dimensional diagram of all the different chromosomes which are made of chromatin in the nucleus. The one thing that's important to note is that the cell actually really hates unitaskers. What do I mean by this? This is actually a term I stole from um, Food Network uh, guy named Alton Brown. Um, one of my favorite shows when I was in graduate school and still is a pro product uh, program called Good Eats, um, where Alton Brown goes through the food science um, and himself and uh, the ex-CTO of Microsoft, uh, Nathan Mervold, are two of the people that I think do a really good job of being geeks, but still having enough non-geekiness to explain things. And so this concept of unitasker, multitasker, is actually kind of the basis of biology and developmental biology. The cell doesn't have unitaskers. Um, the DNA genes are not unitaskers. Proteins are not unitaskers. All these are used at multiple times in the cell's life and in a organism's life and used in different ways. So again, the, the ultimate recycler and the ultimate reduce, reuse, redirect is your cell. And so when we come to these packaging molecules, what we start started to realize in the late 80s, early 90s, with a lot of work that was going on the biochemical side of things, is that all these proteins, all this shaping proteins and all these matrices were vitally involved with how we express genes in our body. And this comes from a variety of places. Some of it is from genetics, some of it's from biochemistry, some of it is from um, disease models. We started to be able to sequence a gene. We started to see that uh, you would have a difference in, in the gene code, which meant that a amino acid, so a part of the protein, was different. So you would have, and these changes would have biophysical, changes that happened in the protein, which means that the protein didn't look the way it should. And form follows function. It means that if your protein doesn't fold and look and shape the way it really should, because it has a different amino acid, it won't do its job. Or it won't do its job well, right? I think we've all probably done the thing where we take the, the, the square head screwdriver and use it on a star or something like that, and we 
it kind of works, but it's not awesome, right? And the same problem in the cell. When we start to have mutations and we use the wrong tool for the wrong task, we get into these problems where we have issues with the cell. And this is how we define a lot of diseases. A lot of diseases that we talk about are really just basically using the using a poor tool, a broken tool for the for the job. With all that said, let's stay on track here. Um, and when we talk about the the multitaskers that are involved with regulating genes that are also regulating and packaging the the genome, we're talking about the beads themselves. So if we think about if you if you can visualize in your head strings wrapped around like a cork core, that cork would be proteins called histones. Um, won't go into all the, the biophysics results, I'll save that for another episode, but essentially what you need to know is these histones are how the cell packages them, and it ends up actually looking like wedges. So, and they, they fold nicely together because they can contact each other, um, and you can compact them really tightly. Ironically, this becomes both an issue and, and, and a source of interest. Because you can uh, pack them tightly, when you try and rebuild re, uh, the system in vitro, so in a, in, a, in a dish, in purified form, where you take purified histones, purified def uh, DNA, mix it together, you end up with this really compact structure which RNA polymerase can't interact with. And so this is the work of a wide variety of people. Um, some of them who were kind of the uh, people that taught the people that taught me. Um, this is a Bob Rader and a, and a, and a Bob Tijan and a, just a wide amount of people, a Danny Renberg, uh, my, my two direct mentors, Nat Heinz and, and Ramin Schikater, who I worked with, who were you know part of the, the scientific groupings, the bigger picture that started to understand RNA polymerase and what it was and how it interacted with things. And a lot of it came from this genesis of understanding that, that the packaging wasn't just packaging, it was also a part of the regulatory machinery throughout development, throughout normal cells, and it was part of what went wrong when we had disease states, cancer, um, a lot of interesting diseases. And I'll, and I'll save that for a different episode because I want to go through the basics and some of the, the experiments that are the, the basis of how we know what we know. So again, we have these three elements. We have the, the, the packaging that we know can be very compact. We have RNA polymerase, which we know can't interact with compacted um, beads on a string. And we have this other state, which as, the, as we started to purify all these things, we realized that that we had the spectrum of, of chromatin. It wasn't just compacted, um, and it wasn't just that there was no beads on the string. There was this, this kind of spectrum in between of, of fully relaxed um, to compacted. But the one thing you did not find was DNA by itself. DNA always has its packaging models. And what this then means is that RNA polymerase by itself can never interact with the genes. And this becomes a conundrum that, that leads to a, a, a wide variety of research in the early 90s and early aughts. And so as we're doing these experiments, it, it's the, the biochemistry here is really cool. 
um, it's really painful to do as a scientist because um, basically what you do is we we started to over the course of about 30 or 40 years understand how we can break open a cell split out the different parts of it to get to the point where we can purify every protein in a cell um, and and the way we can do this uh, is complex but the way to visualize it and again this is always about visualization because we're just having a conversation here is a Plinko machine um, so you can imagine if you've ever seen um, a variety of shows you know you have the Plinko machine which it takes the the ball and pops it down through and it'll move at different speeds based off of the ball size based off of um, how wide the the uh, parts of the Plinko machine are and that's essentially what most of biochemistry is uh, whether you call it FPLC or HPLC or protein purification all these different kind of scientific -y terms um, really all it is is a big giant Plinko machine um, and it's giant but we use it to to separate really really small things that we can't see and you can actually build the Plinko machine to do it a variety of ways one way you can purify only single protein so the only thing that will go through it is you you take you take a different variety of salt and chemical solutions and you break up the cell and that breaks up all the interactions between all the proteins everything is single and then you run it through the machine and if you take X number of drops from the Plinko machine and into different tubes you can actually t say exactly what size of protein is in each drop or e each test tube really cool um, and this is how we started to understand you know the cell because we can now we we have the technology to not only do this for the whole cell we can do it for regions of cells we can do it for purified cell types we can do this for just neurons we can do it for just dopamine cells we can do it for just the nucleus we can do it for just the cytoplasm and then we get into this really interesting time where you can kind of reinvent the Plinko machine <laughs> and, and I apologize because this gets we're gonna get to the the silly state with Plinko machines in a minute once we start to be able to purify proteins and express proteins and make modified proteins that we could express ex vivo or in vitro in a cell in a dish we make a a column of Plinko machine that only allows that so for example RNA polymerase and what we can do is we can take the parts of RNA polymerase we can purify just one of the proteins and then so what we can do is we can purify it and look for who interacts with who and so what what was done is we understood we started to understand at this point that RNA polymerase was an enzyme hence the name polymerase, it polymerizes RNA molecules together. And you can ask the question, who does it, who does it interact with? What's it, <laughs> for lack of a better term, what's its social network look like? Who's it interacting with all the time, sometimes, almost never, and who is stably stuck to it? What you can find is that when you do these experiments, you can get a whole bunch of different answers. And this is where the interesting part of science comes because all these experiments are done and they're thought through starting to understand that cell type mattered that conditions that mattered that happiness of the cell so if you stress the cell 
so you don't give it enough food the 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 partners and the size of network of RNA polymerase changes you can use the same Plinko machine and it's going to go through differently we also started to understand that if you use a different Plinko machine you can get slightly different results and those results were between 10 and 200 proteins so it had stable interactions with 10 proteins sometimes and 200 proteins other times which was really perplexing um, but it also you know and again this is where the biases of, of come in when you've spent your whole career doing X and justifying your career on something you tend to try and understand the importance of that protein now you're always readjusting your biases but you, you still have them and so the idea becomes because RNA polymerase makes mRNA which is one of the more most important molecules in, in the cell it totally makes sense that it has 200 proteins that it stably interacts with that's a, that's a reasonable expectation important process is going to have a lot of regulatory pieces important and complex enzymatic proteins are going to have a lot of support proteins on it and so this all made perfect sense and then of course we started to understand that that was completely misguided and wrong so this is when genetics caught up with the biochemistry and we started to be able to do what we call knockout mice which is the idea that we remove a gene from a mouse and then we see what happens to it we see if it develops a disease we see um, if it, you can even make a mouse like that and people bet their whole careers on the idea that if you deleted one of these 200 partners of RNA polymerase you couldn't make a mouse um, as you can imagine from my foreshadowing for some of these the mouse were completely healthy happy they 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 pooped like a mouse they ate like a mouse they procreated like a mouse um, and you could not really find discernible issues and that seemed really weird um, now obviously one of the pushbacks is that the life of a mouse in a cage doesn't give you the full set of responses that you need from your cells to have to be active and to be able to procreate so um, in the very Darwinian model your your ability to survive is really high and therefore it's really easy to overcome that def deficit where that kind of goes wrong is when you you started to look at molecules that were that interacted with the ones that interacted they were lethal and they were lethal because RNA polymerase no longer worked so that's a that's a head-scratcher right and that's the beauty of science so everybody takes their own biases into it we all communicate with each other and really good scientists what they do is then they reevaluate their biases um, and because they are at the heart experimentalists they take those biases and they want to turn those into experiments they want to ask the question if I reevaluate this how do I prove myself wrong so really good scientists are always skeptics and looking to prove themselves wrong they're not looking to um, shake an angry fist at the world and say I'll prove you wrong they're looking to prove themselves wrong and say well what did, what did I do wrong does that mean your experiment was wrong no absolutely not means maybe 
you didn't think it through, or maybe you did, and we, you just didn't have enough information. So it's that idea that we we take the new information, we reevaluate the models, we redo the experiment, maybe we tweak the experiment, but we start to add another layer onto the knowledge that we have, and we start to take in these other sources of information, and we start to be more convinced that we were wrong and we build out thought experiments to deal with that quote-unquote wrongness and it's just the absence of knowledge right we want to fill that knowledge gap and so as you start to do these experiments and again going back to the Plinko machines and going back to these multiple states of compact and relaxed DNA we start to look at how we can use that experiment. So just using the Plinko machine, really simple experiment that allows us to have a really good idea of what happened. And just say, well, how does RNA polymerase fit into the, the compaction and relaxation and these in-between states of DNA? So short version short is you can find you can break up the 200 protein RNA polymerase into different subunits. One subunit is the polymerase part, the enzyme, and then you have this really robust set of interactions, so grouping of proteins, um, which act as a platform, which are the piece that allow RNA polymerase to interact with with beads on a string. Because again, the enzyme itself cannot interact with beads on a string. And that platform then allows the, the RNA to polymerase to be able to interact and be able to move the beads so that it can make a mRNA. So this is all very good. But as you get genetics, as we get the human genome um, fully sequenced, you start to realize that there are a lot of things that look like these platforms. And you have platforms which you only see in certain cells. And you have platforms which you only see in response to certain signals. And this doesn't make any sense because they never came through on the original biochemical cells. So when you do these Plinko machines and you take all the cells in the body, you never see these stable interactions. And this is when we get into this weird kind of point where we start having to bring in physics and math and enzymology and states of matter and all these horrendously boring concepts to somebody like myself who's very much not a mathematician. You get these you get this understanding that that we have this triangle, right? You have relaxed DNA, compacted DNA, and the ability to to allow RNA polymerase to touch it is really kind of instead of a one-to-one, -one, it's kind of more Heisenbergian. So what do I mean by that? Um, in physics, there's this idea, and if you've ever watched <laughs> Ant-Man or any of the, the Marvel, um, the MCU movies, there's this concept of quantum and the idea that we don't actually know a state of matter and we don't actually, we either know where it is or what it is. We don't know both. And that comes from a, a, a wide variety of Einstein, um, and Rutherford and a whole bunch of other physicists, um, but it's, it's mathematically modeled by Heisenberg. So this idea that you know one of two things really well and the other thing you, you can't predict. Um, and the same goes with, with this, where we're now talking about how, how likely 
we start getting into this idea in the early 90s and, and through now of likelihood. How likely is it based off of the level of compaction, the type of platform that RNA polymerase can interact with that, that gene to make an RNA? And that's, that becomes the whole basis of experimental biology in gene expression. This need for rethinking, you know, what's going on. And this is where we get into this problem of, of visualization. So um, for any scientist who was a biochemist or a geneticist, you really, your whole visualization of, of how you've looked at the science is really one of two things. It's a picture of, of a gel where, where all the proteins are just little bars on, on, a, on, a, on a picture, or it is a picture of a cell, and it's probably just bright spots, not a lot of whole def definition, and it's static, right? These are static images. They don't tell you how they're moving, who they're interacting with at any given millisecond. They tell you what happened on the whole, but they don't tell you what how it happened. So we end up in this problem that we have right now, which is we know what happened at these multiple different states, but we don't know what transition looks like. And what we do know is that transition is the is important, and we know that that's how cancer happens. That we, we know that, that is what is the basis for how it worked, how you overcome the challenge of deleting part of RNA polymerase is how we deal with those transitional states. And that's a really pro a difficult problem. And this is where we get into um, really complex theories that now everybody's going back to try and figure out what, what parts are right. And you have this kind of, <laughs> for lack of a better term, the Matryoshka doll model, um, which is this idea that there is a process inside a process inside a process. And that's really all of cell biology. So when we talk about cell biology, we're talking about this mixture of molecular biology, biochemistry, enzymes, physics, all these confirmations of the, the biophysics of what an enzyme looks like in three-dimensional, what it does, and how those two things, the form and function, align with other proteins. So you'll, you've heard me talk about, you'll see, you've seen things like the lock and key model, and this is the idea that a lock and key has to fit exactly for it to, to work. Same problem, so the whole of biology is just a series of locks and keys and and just kind of modifying the locks or the keys so they either work really well or not well and that's purposeful. Sometimes we have a bad match between a lock and key simply so that we can regulate it. So that we, you know, you have to modify the key to get it to fit properly to unlock the lock or that it won't work every time and, and for any of you who have a jiggly door um, sometimes you have to jiggle the key in the lock. That's essentially what most of entomology in, in a cell is doing. It's really just I've made a crappy copy of this key so that I have to know exactly how to wiggle it to get the unlock, to get the lock to work. And that's that's where I'm gonna I'm gonna leave leave off today. Hopefully what you're kinda it hopefully I haven't confused you too much and what you've gotten out of this is that when we think about genes and we think about how they're expressed and how we do it, um, you should think about, it's not binary, it's not on or off, it's more of a thermostat where you have all these gradations and you can pick exactly what you want. And this is what the cell has to do. Because really what's happening here and why you have this is you have this conversation in the cell because we, 
we sometimes need different amounts of different genes. For something, maybe I only need one copy of it. For sometimes I need 10 copies of it. Sometimes I need 10 now, and I might need five more later. Um, and so can you just make me 50 copies, and I'll use them up as I use them up, because I know I'm going to use them at some point. Well, that's an easy conversation for you and I to have because we can convey all that information. What the cell needs to do is figure out how it how a protein gets modified to have that essentially that conversation, both with it from the nucleus to the cytoplasm, cytoplasm to the nucleus, different parts of the cytoplasm to different parts of the cytoplasm, and cell to cell, right? Because if it, just taking a neuron, for example, if I'm a dopamine neuron and I'm talking to another cell, I need them to understand that conversation and do an action, right? I'm not just talking for the sake of talking. I'm talking because I need, if I've told you something as my neighbor, I need you to do something and it's probably tell another neighbor, right? And that's the, that whole feedback loops within feedback loops. And really that's, that's kind of the whole basis of biology is this, these feedback loops and these <laughs> poorly made keys, which everybody has to know how to jiggle properly. Um, and everybody has a key that has to jiggle just slightly different. And the rate at which we all figure that out, and the rate at which every cell can jiggle their key, is how we make decisions. That's actually, you know, the shortest version I can give you of how your brain works from an electrical activity perspective. And it's also true of gene expression. And with that, and end there and thank you for listening uh, and on the next time I'm going to go through more of the biochemistry that of how we modify those those histones and how we know it um, hopefully sticking with more of the experimental side uh, and giving you some visuals um, please check out the my Instagram and the the blog for more of the the whiteboards um, that go along with this thank you <laughs>